Please open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. This book, 1 Samuel, in the Old Testament, begins with the incredible story of a barren, godly wife named Hannah, who lives in the midst of a people who are described in the book of Judges this way. A generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And in the very last verse in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 1 Samuel opens our eyes to how God deals with his rebellious people who now want a king so they could be like all the other nations around them. We're going to see how nothing can thwart God's plan of redemption through a future Messiah who will come through these people. God raises up a man to lead Israel who is a prophet and priest and the last of the judges. He's born after God answers the prayer of the barren Hannah and is then given by Hannah, back to God to serve the Lord all of his life, and his name is Samuel. What does the name of Samuel mean? It means God hears or heard by God. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. 1 Samuel 1, verses 19 through the end of chapter 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with the three-year-old bull and ephah flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord 
and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We left off two weeks ago knowing that God would open Hannah's womb and that she would conceive and bring a boy into the world. But now we will see whether she will follow through on her vow, her vow to God, to give her son back to the Lord for lifelong service to him. We also need to examine what a vow is and try to understand how and why Hannah could consider such a thing. And as we consider this passage today, there is a whole lot to stretch our own understanding about our families and children. This all ends up dealing with each Christian's call by the Lord to love and serve him in every area of his life. Well, does Hannah follow through and keep her vow to the Lord? Well, obviously we know that she does. But maybe we need to think about why she does. Because in order to see this clearly, consider how your own heart usually works when you're making such a serious decision. In Hannah's case, once she is holding that little boy, how easy would it be to compromise on her promise? Wouldn't God understand if she didn't keep her vow? Couldn't she maybe keep him home to serve the Lord? Wouldn't it be better to let Samuel be trained well and then let him make his own decision? Kind of throwing in that she made a vow about him and maybe you ought to think about it. It should be clear that God takes making a vow to him very seriously We live in a day when nobody takes anybody's word seriously, much less their own. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 6, uh, we see a passage that kind of sums this up. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6 says this, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What's the point? The point here is that a vow or a promise before God must be made seriously or soberly, honestly, and with mature judgment. The opposite of this would be the foolish vow that is made, and this helps us understand what a, what a true, serious honest, mature 
judgment in making a vow, how different that is. The foolish vow is made flippantly without enough consideration. It's made dishonestly because usually there's a back door left in, our, in the mind and heart to get out of it if need be. And immaturely because the means to carry it out just aren't anywhere to be found. In other words, it's immature because you don't have the means to carry out the intentions of your heart. But when we're immature, we think we can accomplish anything and keep anything and do anything. Making vows before God is not something that we just see in the Old Testament. And those of you that were able to attend Kelsey and Jacob's wedding a little over a week ago, you saw two really serious, serious, serious uh, people uh, keeping attention and considering what they were promising. One of the things, uh, the people that were up close and personal in that, including me, um, Carly got an up close and personal, Margaret got an up close and personal, Cammie got an up close and personal, was the seriousness in their faces. Um, They were not off on another planet. Um, Everything's got to go right. They were concentrating on those words. And it was a joy to see. How many have made marriage vows before God? Or ordination vows of some sort in a church? Or church membership vows? Or oaths of office? Isn't that interesting? We haven't got completely away from this yet. What about Hannah? Well, let's pick up the story in verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now, we've heard this before, haven't we? Elkanah continued his practice of being faithful to the Lord and worshiping regularly and going to Shiloh where the tabernacle was located at this point. And even in the midst of a people who had more or less forgotten God, Elkanah had not. Now, we need to realize how unusual that was. It shouldn't have been, but it was. We are also living in a day similar. Verse 22. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now at first glance, this may seem like Hannah is holding back and fulfilling her vow. But actually, the opposite is true. She is refusing to go up to the tabernacle until she was fully prepared to leave her very young son, which is actually a sign that she was faithful in fulfilling her vow. She had thought about this. She had seriously and soberly and honestly and with mature judgment 
made this vow to God. And you can tell from what she told her husband, Elkanah, that her primary goal is to fulfill her promise and this obligation to the Lord. William Blakey explains it this way. Had she gone before her son was weaned, she would have to take him with her and then take him away with her And that would have broken the solemnity of the transaction when finally, at last, she would take him for good. In other words, the very first time that she would present herself at that holy place where God had heard her prayer and her vow would be the time that she would fulfill this vow. And in case you're wondering, this is not some little bitty kid. The weaning process could be three years or longer. One of the reasons was because water was so dangerous to drink at that point, and the mother spent a lot longer time. And when she leaves him at the tabernacle to be raised, she leaves him. So she was preparing for this. Verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now we look over this part of this passage. Uh, I've heard it just skipped in messages on this chapter. And this is a very interesting and very important part of this whole story. This shows us something. It shows us there was spiritual unity between Elkanah and Hannah. How so? Elkanah knew what Hannah's motives really were. And here we see him supporting her. And her, under, and her understanding of what fulfilling this vow actually required. He was glad to do this. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now we, we need to, to kind of pause right here. And, and go with this. Richard Phillips offers some very good counsel here on this passage about the blessings of spiritual unity between a husband and wife, and it's so good. I want to share some of these points. Here we see an Old Testament husband who is leading his wife and supporting her. Couples should seek a shared sense of purpose in their worship and Christian service. As either is led to undertake special giving or ministry, the two should collaborate in their family service to God. This is possible, how? Only when 
the husband and wife joined together in the word of God and prayer being evenly yoked in their spiritual walk and providing mutual support for the satisfaction and service of each before God. Husbands having received spiritual headship in the family should be especially focused in on and trying to understand and perceive the gifts and ministry callings of their wives. Do you you see that here? This is the Old Testament where we usually go, well, women don't have a chance. Yeah, their culture is a lot more restricted, but look what's going on right here in this passage. The Bible's mandate for male leadership in the church and home does not limit the full partnership of women in the work of both. Elkanah seems to have understood the extraordinary role that Hannah was playing. And rather than being defensive or resentful of it, what did he do? He accommodated himself to support her fully. Don't forget that this was also his son. You know, I've seen folks read this, and sometimes I I notice that I kind of do that. You, You just forget that he's even in the picture. It's all Hannah and her son that she was barren, and God opened her womb, and now she has this little boy, and you forget, oh, there, there is a father here. This is his boy. So highly did he value the spiritual contributions of his wife that he did not oppose the gift of his son to the Lord. Christian men today should likewise be keen to foster important Christian service from women in accordance with the gender pattern given in God's word, which always ends up being all the issue, and to look upon our daughters and wives as vital partners in the work of the Lord. Partners. Evenly yoked. Also, what can we learn here about the attitude Christian parents should have towards their children? Oh, boy, we could go forever on this one. Maybe it was just because of two long weeks and I was really tired, but I thought, oh, yeah, we'll just cover this today. Here we go. A little bit, anyway. Parents are primarily called to equip or fit their children for service to God for their whole lives. Whether as members of the church or maybe even full-time or formal calling or as stewards of God's grace in Christ in whatever vocation or work God leads them into. That's where most people fall. But all Christians should also have that first one as members of the church. You know, I went to a conference a couple of years ago with a uh, college ministry, and and I met with some college ministry folks that were in charge of uh, college ministry across the whole United States on 
various campuses, and it was, it, it's a very, very well-known college ministry that some of you have actually been a part of. And you know what they were talking about? He was saying that his main job as a college minister, besides the gospel part of sharing and evangelism, which was huge for this group, was to help kids who came from Christian families in evangelical churches figure out how to be a part of the church. You know why? Because most evangelical churches today separate the kids so much from the church that they do not know how to be a part of the whole. And so when they leave home, it's like, ah, what do we do? And I thought that was very telling and very, very interesting. In other words, hard work, excellence, finishing the job, respect, diligence, etc., all those things that Christian parents are called to bring before and help train up the child to know how to do that are all subsets of something. They're subsets of the primary calling to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because if your purpose, if, the, if, if Christ is known by that child, as he grows up, there will be a respect and a service for him, a submission to what his will is. And so all these other things then fall into place like normal. It would be normal to work in the workplace with a respectful attitude if you have a respect for the one who created you and saved you. It will not be normal for that kid if they spend their whole life thinking they can do whatever they want to do and being bailed out every time they have an issue. You see that? This is really important. So if, if our children do not get the glorify God part, they will not have any reason to do excellent work or to finish anything or to be diligent other than what? Pleasing themselves and satisfying their own desires, which is why it's hit and miss and up and down. This fitting of our children to serve the Lord is not possible if Christian parents don't understand that their children first belong to the Lord before they belong to us. Now, Hannah is in a unique situation. God is going to, he, he is raising up Samuel for a huge purpose in his plan of redemption that none of us can probably say is true of our kids. But that doesn't lessen the principle and the whole import of what's going on here. Can you say? Well, it's easy to say. Can you say that your kids belong to God before they belong to you? Hannah and Elkanah learned this lesson, as we mentioned, through the drastic experience 
of Hannah being barren for so long and being persecuted for it. Still, each Christian parent should recognize that they are stewards of their child's upbringing on behalf of the Lord. The battle is fought today as it has really always been fought on the ground of recognizing what the worldly goals are that undermine God's perspective on what life is all about. And these can easily be confused. For example, do your kids believe that great success in the world is the most important reason to get an education? Is that what you have taught them? Do you see your kids' primary concern being attaining great wealth or becoming famous or being adored for their beauty and talent? which is what our whole culture is based on right now. This is what it's morphed into. One of the greatest hindrances to a genuine calling to ministry or missionary work is the parent's own obstacle, them. Even Christian parents, why? Because we don't want our babies to leave home. And God calls us, and he says our job is to do what? To prepare them to leave home. And this doesn't mean we manufacture it and make it happen. It means that we are submissive to God. We prepare them to learn to depend on God on their own, to walk with him on their own, so that if he does call them somewhere else, they'll be okay, and they will flourish At least then when they do come home, they want to. There's a lot of funny things about this. But some of us have got this backwards. If you want greater, your kids to enjoy greater ease, it's not a bad thing unless it's the primary goal. Or if you want prestige for your kids to make up for your own lack. Or if you want them to always live close, you may need to examine your own heart about what's really important. What if God did want to call your kid to a mission field in a place where becoming a Christian meant death? There's no tougher question. But if they belong to God and you prepared them, could you handle that? Or would you keep them from it and do everything you could not to, not to let them go? To raise them so that they will rejoice in serving the Lord and we've got to use this W word, whatever it looks like, is the Christian's calling of stewardship. In other words, it's a lack of faith on our part as parents when we don't trust God 
with working with our kids to lead them where he wants them to be. We can provide direction. We can shoot them in the right direction, you know, the arrow thing. We can do prepare them as well as we can, but, you know, there comes a time when we've got to trust that God will lead them. And if they stay around, you're blessed. And if he calls them away, you're also blessed. Because you're trusting the Lord. Verse 24 and 25. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, and he passed of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. There is an unmistakable recognition here that even with the best of motives, nobody can approach God unless their sins have been atoned for. In other words, we can't approach God unless our sins have been cleansed, which is pictured graphically here in these two verses. Hannah recognized this. The bull she brought was slaughtered, a blood sacrifice for her and Samuel's sin. She's not buying off God. She's not doing something so that God will do something back. She recognizes this. We've seen incredible maturity in this woman since the first time we read her name. A blood sacrifice for her and for Samuel's sins. But he's a baby. He's a toddler. Yep. Notice that first the bull was slaughtered and then Samuel was brought to Eli. We must recognize two important things here, don't mustn't we? We are unworthy to stand before God. We're stained by sin and worldliness. Our hearts are distracted. Our service is poor. And secondly, we are cleansed by Christ's blood, which these Old Testament sacrifices point to. They point to the Savior being the ultimate sacrifice. And on the basis of Christ's blood cleansing us, we can be sure we will be accepted in God's grace. Paul says in Colossians 1.12 that Christ has qualified us, unquote. He's qualified us sinners to enter God's family and to participate in the glorious work of his kingdom. This passage is so counter everything that's going on in this culture at this point, which is why God is working amongst his people. Then we read in verses 26 through 28, And she said to Eli, By the way, we're going to see, if you don't know this already, that Eli's two sons, who were priests, were some of the most wicked, evil men in this whole culture, and they were priests. 
And yet, look at the respect we see here for the office of the old man who also had huge issues. And we'll see all this. She said to Eli, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Remember chapter 1? Eli was sitting by the, in the tabernacle area and she saw this woman and he, he thought she was drunk because she was crying out to the Lord in her heart. Her lips were moving. There wasn't anything saying that she, she was behaving like he thought she was drunk. And we noticed then that the only reason he would even say that is because that scenario was so common in the temple area at this time in Israel's history. Can you imagine? He didn't know what to do with a sincere heart, a genuine heart, pouring itself out to the Lord he was there to serve. And immediately when he recognized it and she appealed to him in chapter 1, boy, he quit. And then he offered a blessing to her that she believed because he was speaking as God's priest to her in the form of a blessing. And she took it to her heart and believed it. That's how all this got started. So she keeps going. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, and each English translation has some strange words going on here trying to convey what this says. I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now here's a literal translation of, these, of this part. You'll pick up on it really quick. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my asking that I ask from him. Therefore, I have given back to the Lord what was asked. As long as he lives, what was asked for is given back to the Lord. I kind of like that one. Lent kind of has a, like there's term limits and accruing interest and all sorts of stuff. There wasn't any. She's saying very simply what? What is she saying? Eli, I am giving him to God because God gave him to me. That's a grateful heart. That's somebody who knows how great is. How great God is. And she is glad to do this. She is not wailing and holding on to him as she gives him. She is gratefully giving him over as probably I, anywhere from three to five years old to live and be raised in the tabernacle by this guy. All you mothers are going, ah! There's a, there's sharp, part of you should do that, but this, she knows this is all God's doing.
Now, isn't this true of all God's service, that this is the attitude? See, that's what's important about this. You serve the Lord. You give to the Lord, not because you get stars on your little chart or brownie points or you earn credit with God. You serve the Lord and you give to the Lord because of God's gift of his son to us. If you do not value the gift, it means that you don't know how badly you needed the gift. That you were lost without the gift. That you cannot stand before God without the gift of Jesus Christ, his life, his work, and his blood covering you. You are not forgiven without Christ. So if you don't value this, then you don't get the whole gospel. Does Hannah get it? Yeah. She gets it. So with thanksgiving for God's grace, Hannah is allowing Samuel to be brought up in the temple, and that was seen by her. This whole thing is is viewed by her. This is what she is thinking. Not as a necessary but terrible sacrifice. And how many of us would have been doing that? I don't know whether I can do this. He's so cute. God gave him to Surely he meant for us to have him. Okay, now can't we just... God will understand. See, that's not even a part of her mindset. She sees this as a deep joy. And she's not negating the loss of not being able to raise him herself. But it's a deep joy to give her most precious gift back to the one who gave it. And that's the heart of a true believer. It should be our hearts. It's why we do things for one another. It's why we love one another. It's why we care for one another. It's why we pray for one another. And he worshiped the Lord. What do you think? How old is he? And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord. Now, it doesn't say who was with him. Why does the chapter end like that? Now, the next chapter, we immediately see Hannah prayed and said, which is more or less, this is her song in chapter 2, the first part. But isn't this the whole purpose? Isn't this what she wanted? That her son would worship the Lord and be used by him in whatever capacity that God wanted to use him? She was sold out to that. It was her heart's desire. It was everything that made her tick. And it ends with, and he worshiped the Lord there. That is beautiful. You know, every one of us who calls on the name of the Lord is called to serve him. Every one of us. Samuel had a unique calling. Oh, are we going to see that? 
But there's just as much value in someone who serves God faithfully in their secular vocation or in the home, etc., as there is in one who's called to serve in the church. What does God desire of each of us, no matter where he has called us to serve? He wants our whole lives, which he gave us in the first place. Oh, there's a connection with this chapter. And which he has purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. And you know what? This is the common message all the way through the Bible. See if this verse sounds familiar. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you know you belong to Jesus Christ, have you ever consciously presented yourself to God in the same manner that Hannah presented young Samuel? Hannah acknowledged that God had given Samuel to her, so then it was right to give him to God in return. So let each of us say to our Lord, Lord, you made me. And forgive me for being real picky about how you did that. You have redeemed me from my sin through the death of your son. I, I now, so I now belong to you. So I offer my whole life for your praise and for your service to your glorious kingdom. And we, and we stop right there because we don't really know how he's going to make that work. But he does. So we offer ourselves gratefully. We offer ourselves faithfully. We offer ourselves generously. We offer ourselves completely, and we offer ourselves unreservedly, all of which are illustrated here by Hannah's offering Samuel. Now, which could you remember better, all those words or this story? See, one will help you remember the other, and that's the point. Isn't God so caring and creative that he gives us this important Directive all the way through Scripture in hundreds and hundreds of different ways. The last one is also Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. Holy 
and acceptable to God because of Christ, the mercy in Christ. And that's your spiritual worship, no matter what your calling is in life. Isn't that fantastic? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we we exalt in your majesty, in your power, in your sovereignty, in your love for us, in your care and concern for your people, and your sending your own son to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you that you have bought us with Christ's blood. Thank you that... You have made us a part of your family, that you have saved us when we were your enemy, each of us. Thank you that you've given us a reason to live in this life. And that we will be worshiping the reason to live, your son, forever and ever and ever thank you that you make sense of what we're going through and you actually communicate a lot of the reasons and the ones we don't know and that we keep demanding to know. Oh God, we know that you know and that you do everything for your glory and our good. Thank you for making us a part of your redemption plan of being able to proclaim the truth, the only truth that will save people that are lost and in despair and wondering what they're doing here. Thank you that the power to do that comes from your spirit who indwells each of your people who have put their faith in Christ. And, oh God, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts and open our eyes to see the truth and to be able to trust you with it. Trust ourselves. Trust our children to you. Trust our fellow believers to you. We pray for the power and the energy to pray. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son. And we thank you that you're opening up this book and that we will now see a man who walked with you and that you used to usher your people through a transition into trusting human kings. And you could use even these people's misdirection to ultimately bring the Messiah through one of these people's family to be the Savior and Lord. Oh God, we we thank you for what you've done in the lives of our people the last couple of weeks. The incredible series of circumstances both hard and beautiful and you've wrapped it all up in your grace and you've allowed us to just be washed over by it all 
We thank you for that peace of knowing that we are secure in Jesus Christ. Oh God, we pray that you would use your gospel and our proclamation of it to bring people to Christ in this area, especially this area, and through the missionaries that we love and support and have heard from who are in really some tough places on this earth. We think that you will make all things right and that you will come again and that you will come in victory through your son and you're coming for us at the right time for each of us. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Let me say this. Then we'll make sure everybody is participating. It's three phrases and an end. It's the easiest benediction in the Bible, almost. Grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Think we can do that together? Because I think we need to say this to one another. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.